All right, guys. It's good again to be with you guys. Uh, we are going to be in John chapter 6. Um, so if you guys want to get your Bibles and turn in your Bibles to John chapter 6, that would be awesome if you made it in here without a Bible. There are Bibles in front of you, um, underneath the seat in front of you. And the page number is there in the bottom right-hand corner of the screen for the church Bibles. John chapter 6. And I'm going to read through the whole thing, and then we'll, we'll jump into it. <clears throat> we're going we're gonna to start in verse 60 and go through 71. So before I read it, I will say there's a lot of context that we are jumping right into. And there's no way we're going to get the fullness of it this morning. Um, I would encourage you guys, if you have time later today, to read through the beginning part of the chapter. Um, so you have a fuller understanding of what's been going on. But I'll give you a, a, a summarized version here in a little bit. But let's read it together. Therefore, many of Jesus' disciples, when they heard this, said, This is a hard saying. Who can understand it? When Jesus knew in himself that his disciples complained about this, he said to them, Does this offend you? What then, if, I, if you should see the Son of Man ascend where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit, and they are life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who would betray him. And he said, Therefore I have said to you, that no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him by my Father. From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. Then Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away also? But Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Also, we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, for it was he who would betray him, being one of the twelve. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you specifically for this passage we get to cover this morning. And we join in with the prayer of the psalmist who, who asked, Lord, open my eyes that I might see wonderful things from your law, from your word. And we just pray for that this morning, that you would just help us to see more of you through the lens of your word, through the mirror of your word, to see more of who you are, Lord. And may we be drawn closer to you today. As you've promised that if we'll draw near to you, you will draw near to us. May that be so today, we pray, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. This passage, um, one of the big things it's, it's dealing with that we just read, like I said, there's lots of context behind it, but what th those specific verses is, is really dealing with the, the temptation of turning away, of leaving Christ. And this is a temptation, I believe, that 
most, if not every single believer at one point or another are going to face in their lives this temptation, these thoughts to turn back away from Christ. And, and um, there seems to be two extremes you can go to when facing that, right? And neither of them are good. Um, one would be the, the tragic moment that we read where the, the masses start turning away and they actually leave Jesus in, in, in the face of that temptation. They, they up and walk away. Um, the, the other space would be, um, I think, ignoring it. Ignoring that that's there for the sake of, of thinking, well, if, if, I, if I start to feel this way, like I'm disappointing God that I'm, I'm having these feelings, I'm having these thoughts, I'm having these temptations. And so it, rather than dealing with it and, and walking through it, we just kind of pretend like it's not there and we try to say, ah, you know, nothing's wrong here. Right, and, and I don't think either of those are where God wants us to be. Certainly the first one is 100% not where God wants us to be, but the second is not as well. And this morning, we're going to seek to look at God's Word and see how He would have us to rightly deal with this sort of temptation when we come to it. So verse 60 says, Therefore many of His disciples, when they heard this, said, This is a hard saying. Who can understand it or who can accept it? Um, Like I said, there's no way we can catch up on all the details. And I do, once again, encourage you guys to try to catch up on it if you can. uh, So you have a more full picture of what's going on here. But in short, they're having a hard time accepting a teaching Jesus had just given them. Uh, Definitely things regarding salvation, things regarding the fact that he was going to die rise again, right? But he, he, he was speaking of it in terms that were kind of hard for them to grasp. And it makes sense that it was hard. It hadn't happened yet, right? For us, it makes a lot of sense, you know, um, hindsight's twenty twenty, right? And, and, and yet for them, it was a hard space to understand. But it was also um, hard for them to, to embrace what he was saying. One of the things that, that you know, their objections to this situation is, Jesus is claiming divinity. Jesus is claiming to be the one that can bring them salvation, bring them life. life. And then they're thinking in their mind, isn't this the carpenter's son? Right? That's, that's one of the conversations prior to. So they're having this very hard time uh, embracing this crazy thing that Jesus is saying that he's come to save and that if they'll partake of his body, his blood, speaking of what he would do on the cross, that he would bring salvation and life to them. And they would be satisfied and never spiritually hungry or thirsty again. Um, he's offering them eternal life, but it's a hard pill for them to swallow. And, and they're getting ready to walk away from Jesus. So this is how Jesus responds. Verse 61, it says, When Jesus knew in himself that his disciples complained, right? So these are followers of Jesus. They complained about him. He said this to them, Does this offend you? What then, if you should see the Son of Man ascend where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no good, right? It profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who would betray him. And he said, therefore, I've said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him. By my Father. 
And, and Jesus knows what's going on in these people's minds. He knows they're complaining, they're grumbling about what he just said, right? And if he was just a human like us, at that point, we would probably start backtracking, right? Like, oh, you know what? I, you know what? I kind of meant that. I kind of didn't. I'm sorry, guys. I offended you, right? And Jesus uh, just so doesn't do that, right? He's like, oh, did that offend you? Well, guess what? <laughs> How how you feel if you see me ascend back up to heaven, right? Just very clearly st- stating that he's deity, right? Like, I came from heaven, I'm going back to heaven. How are you going to feel about that? And then just to make it more pointed, he says, hey, your flesh is no good. You can't save yourself. You're counting on the law to save you. You're counting on your own good deeds to save you. It can't do a thing, right? The Spirit of God alone can bring you life. My words that I'm speaking to you, their spirit, their life, I'm pointing you to eternal life, and yet you're rejecting me. You can only come if the Father's drawing. He's bringing some amazing truths to them, and, and uh, they don't like that, right? Verse 66, it's a tragic moment. From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him, no more. It's a, it's a sobering moment. You just see this moment where it says many, right? It doesn't say a couple, a few. It says many followers of Jesus, many disciples turned. And what makes it more tragic is it says they walked with him no more. It seems as if these people never come back to Jesus, right? They t- turn their backs for good. And that's a tragic moment when we think about what the scriptures teach us regarding what it means to turn our back on God. Isaiah 1, 4 through 5 says this, they have forsaken the Lord. They have provoked to anger the Holy One of Israel. They have turned away backward. Why should you be stricken again? You will revolt more and more. The whole head is sick and the whole heart faints. God just looks at uh, this people that had turned their back on him and he's like, why are you doing this, right? It's just gonna end in judgment. It's going to end in destruction. It's going to end in sickness and, and, and brokenness of, of who this, these people are in their hearts and their minds. Um, and and we, when we think about it, I mean, that's, that's exactly what we should expect, right? If God is the author of life, He is the author of salvation, He is the author of peace and hope and creation, we turn our back on that. The only alternative to turn towards is death. It's destruction. It's, it's misery. Jeremiah put it this way, He says, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. I'm not sure what happened there, but I've got it here too. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewn out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. When we think about um, what what God is telling us here, he's saying, hey, I'm the fountain of water, right? And he just gives us this picture of like a, a waterfall, right, of just a continual source of life, and then his people turning their back and saying, uh, man, I don't, I, I don't want you. I don't need you, right? I'm going to dig in this nasty New Mexican dry dirt and try to find some water, right? Maybe not New Mexican dirt, Israeli dirt, whatever, but um, that's, that's the same picture, right? It's like, yeah, we're going to, while we have this waterfall of life coming out here, we're going to turn our back on that and start digging in this dirt, Right? And, and God just says, hey, that's, it's never going to satisfy you. It's never going to bring you life. Isaiah 45, uh, 22 puts it this way. It's God speaking. He says, turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. 
for I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn. From my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return void. To me every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. Um, when we think about what, what the scriptures are, are, are telling us here, it's like God is the source of life. We turn our back on him and we turn our back on life. And, and in this moment, that's what these people are doing. They are turning their back on the Lord. Um, they are turning their back on, on God. And it's a tragic moment. And then just the moment gets all the more serious as the crowds are leaving. And we pick it up in verse 67. Jesus turns to the 12 disciples and he just asks them this sobering question. He says, do you also want to go away? I mean, you have to picture it being there. Imagine being one of the 12 disciples and, and you know, you're, you're having a hard time as Jesus are, is teaching these things. You're struggling with some of these concepts and are really having a hard time still. And then you just start seeing this crowd. Maybe it was one by one walking away or maybe it just was a massive uh, exodus or, or one way or another at some point it becomes very clear like this group is getting smaller and smaller and smaller so much so that it, it's just very evident to everybody and Jesus turns to the 12 you know and perhaps after dozens maybe hundreds of people have turned their backs on Jesus he said hey do you guys do you guys want to leave too giving them that option seeing where they're at and it's a sad it's a heavy moment, but in this moment we get a beautiful and refreshing breath of air. Uh, in verse 68 says this, but Simon Peter answered Jesus, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Also, we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered them, did I not choose you, the twelve? And one of you is the devil. For he spoke of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. For it was he who would betray him, being one of the twelve. Peter answers Jesus in this moment, and, and his answer has become uh, an anchor of, of, of uh, just help in, in many Christians' lives. I can just say for me, like in times where I've been struggling in my faith and my walk with Christ, so many times I've come back to this passage and thought and reasoned in the same space that, that Peter is at. It's a beautiful moment, a beautiful answer that Peter gives. And, and I believe God has used it for many Christians in times of deep trial and times of deep testing to, to hold fast in the middle of it. Um, he, he just responds, where, where else can we go? And I love at the outset, Peter doesn't ignore the question. He doesn't pretend like there's no problem here, right? Because he could have. He could have been like, Jesus, we never would have even thought of doing that, right? Like, we're good. He could have answered that way. But he doesn't. He answers very honestly, and he just says, where else would we go? Meaning, he had thought about where else to go, and there was no other place to go. So he's like, we're here, right? We got nowhere else to go. It's almost as if, you know, Peter's out on, on a boat in the middle of a raging sea, storm all around. He's like, I really don't like being in this boat, right? But 
Jumping out is not an option at this point. Like, I'm toast if I do that. There's nowhere else for me to go. I'm here, right? Peter recognized, like, Jesus, you're the only hope. And sometimes, like, that's all we have to hold on to in times of deep testing, in times of deep questioning and, and doubts and trials is just this reality, like, there's no, there's no other alternative. You're the only one that has hope. You're it. Um, you know, he acknowledges this reality that it's a hard moment that he, he was likely struggling with some of the things Jesus was teaching, not fully understanding it, right? Seeing the crowds walk away and feeling the peer pressure and yet being able to say, there's nowhere else for me to go. I'm staying because there's nowhere else. You're it. Um, and uh, that's a, a good place to come to, a good place to come to, but he doesn't stop there, thankfully, Right, he keeps going. Not only does he acknowledge where he's at, but he 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 um, quickly and beautifully acknowledges just who Christ is and who he had come to know Christ was. He he says, um, "You, you alone have the words of eternal life, and we have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God." He agrees with what Christ had just recently said. Right, Jesus said. My words are spirit and life, right? He says, you got the words to eternal life. You're the Holy One of God. Like, I'm agreeing that you're the one who's descended and you're going to ascend. Like, he's agreeing uh, um, and, and recognizing who Christ is and saying, hey, I'm holding here because this is hard, right? But, but you're my only hope, and you are the Holy One of God. I, I don't know where... Today finds you, brothers and sisters, but if you find yourself struggling in a space where you're wrestling with your faith, right, where you're even maybe having questions of turning away from Jesus, or maybe this is going to happen in the future, or wherever you're found this morning, maybe you've faced it in the past, um, I believe God wants us to know we're not alone in this struggle. Uh, we're in very good company in this struggle. Um, I think he goes out of his way to, to reveal this to us in his word. I think of what it says in 1 Corinthians. God tells us that no temptation has overtaken us except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. God just lets us know, hey, any temptation you face, it's common to mankind. Other people have faced those same temptations, right? You may feel alone and you may feel like, man, I can't talk to anybody about my struggles, my faith, because like, you know, God's going to be disappointed in me and, and I'm going to hurt his feelings and, and, you know, and you feel so much shame and you feel so, and God is just saying, hey, you're not alone in this, right? And I will provide a way out so that you can endure it. And the Bible is just so honest about the struggles that God's people have had over the years. I think of this uh, passage in Matthew 28, and for context, Jesus has died and risen from the dead. He's already appeared to the disciples several times, and now he's going to meet with them on a mountain he told them uh, to meet him at. And it says this, Then the eleven disciples left for Galilee, going to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw Jesus, they worshipped him, but some of them doubt it, right? These are the 11 disciples. This is after the resurrection. Like, Jesus is getting ready to ascend back into heaven. And they're worshiping him. But at the same time, some of them are doubting. Like, 
and, and God just lets us know this, right? He just goes out of his way to let us know, hey, you guys aren't alone when you have struggles. You aren't alone when you have doubts. Um, we're not alone in this. We're going to take a, a couple moments to cover some passages um, that, that deal with this and, and maybe just see it in other people's lives. So we, are, we just saw it in Peter and the disciples' lives, um, as well as the life of those who turned away from Jesus, right? Um, but let, let's flip in your scriptures over to Matthew chapter 11, and we'll see the same sort of struggle in um, John the Baptist's life. Matthew chapter 11, and we're going to start in verse 1. Verse 1 says this, Now it came to pass, when Jesus finished commanding his twelve disciples, that he departed from there to teach and to preach in their cities. And when John had heard in prison about the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples and said to Jesus, right? He, said, he asked his disciples to ask this to Jesus, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? Jesus answered and said to them, Go and tell John the things which you hear and you see. The blind see, and the lame walk, and the lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who is not offended because of me. So if you're familiar with John the Baptist, um, he was no stranger to Jesus at this moment, right? God had called John the Baptist to prepare the way for Jesus, right? John had been going and preaching the gospel of the kingdom, right? He had been baptizing people and seeking to prepare their hearts to receive the, the coming king. And John himself has already had dealings with Jesus. I'm going to read it to you. You don't need to turn there. But in John chapter 1... Um, Verse uh, 29, it says this. This is speaking of John the Baptist again, who was a relative of Jesus. It says, The next day, John saw Jesus coming towards him and said, Behold, look, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who is far before me, preferred before me, for he was before me. I do not... I did not know him, but that he should be revealed to Israel, I came baptizing with water. And John bore witness, saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and he remained upon Jesus. I did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, Upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. An amazing testimony in this moment, right? He just powerfully witnesses in front of many people, hey, this is the Lamb of God, the Son of God, who's come to take away the sins of the world. He, he had personal confirmation from God saying, hey, the one on whom you see the Holy Spirit descending is, is the one who, who will baptize others with the Holy Spirit. 
And so John has personal confirmation in so many ways of who Jesus is and what he had come to do. Um, beyond that, you just look at John's life, and this is not like some shrimpy dude, you know, that was so afraid of, of all kinds of stuff. I mean, this guy lived out in the wilderness, kind of people thought he was a crazy person, I'm sure. I mean, he went around eating grasshoppers and just like roaming out in the wilderness. Um, probably would be a little worried if you ran into him alone in, in the forest. I'm just saying he's probably like a kind of, you know, different type of fellow. But he was so bold for the Lord, right? He, he, uh, he rebuked some of the most prominent people of their day, the people that nobody would ever talk bad to, and he called them a bunch of snakes, right? He says, you, you den of snakes, you, who warned you to flee from God's wrath to come? Judgment is coming. Turn from your sins. Uh, he just called them out, said it like it was, and, and it was what God had called him to do. He even called out uh, a political figure that was the one who ends up putting him in jail, right? He calls him out and says, hey, he's a, he's a um, fox. Actually, I think I, twi- I got that mixed up with Jesus, but um, he calls him out on his sin. Um, he calls him out on, on his sin with, with uh, um, sexual immorality, and, you know, he wasn't afraid to, to rebuke and, and stand up for what he knew was true, and he, he knew that he had been called to prepare the way for Christ. But in this moment, we read, as John's in prison, verse 2 says, as John's in prison, he hears about the works of Christ, and he sends two of his disciples to ask Jesus, are you the one to come? Are you the coming one? Or should we look for another? So it's like, what has happened in this moment? You know, he was so sure and so bold. And then in this moment, he's like now sending his disciples because he's stuck in prison. He can't get out. He's stuck in prison. He sends his disciples, hey, would you go? Go ask Jesus if he's really the one, right? He's struggling in this moment with doubts and, and uncertainty. And he does the right thing, right? He, he goes to Jesus, right? He sends his disciples and says, hey, get word from Jesus, and, and Jesus in this moment could have sent back a scolding rebuke, right? Like, come on, you of little faith, get with the program. Like, you're supposed to be the guy that was getting things ready for me, and here you are, right? But Jesus just gives him a word of encouragement in this moment. He tells the disciples, go tell John the things which you're seeing, that you're hearing, that the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the, the dead are raised, and the poor have the gospel the good news preached to them, and happy is the one who is not offended because of me. And he's, he's speaking in reference to Isaiah's prophecy that the Spirit of God would be upon the anointed one to do these things, right? Jesus actually, in his public ministry, read this in the synagogue and said, I fulfilled these words, right? And so Jesus is just confirming the prophetic word to John, reassuring him in this moment and then beyond that, Jesus starts, as, as uh, the disciples leave, um, uh, the disciples of, of John the Baptist, they leave. Uh, Jesus talks to the people who are witnessing the scene, right? They're witnessing the Q&A that just took place. It says, verse 7, as they departed, Jesus began to say to the multitudes concerning John, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? 
Well, what did you go out to see? A man clothed in soft garments? Indeed, those who wear soft clothing are in the king's houses. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I say to you, and more than a prophet. For this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Assuredly, I say to you, among those born of women, there is not risen one greater than John the Baptist, but he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. In this moment, Jesus could have, uh, you know, and rightly done so, he could have rightly um, given a scolding to, to, to John, right? He could have, uh, um, you know, now that the disciples are gone, he could have talked to the crowds and like, can you believe this John the Baptist guy? After all that I've done, after all that I've shown him, and he's going to be asking that kind of questions? Like, what is this guy? You know, he doesn't do that at all. He, he speaks honor of what God had been doing in John the Baptist. And, and um, when we think about John, like what's going on in this situation? What's happening? I don't know. God doesn't spell it out, but maybe read between the lines. And, and maybe this has just gone so far different than John was expecting, right? I mean, maybe he wasn't really planning to be thrown in prison. Maybe he was, you know, I, I don't know what was going through his mind. But it certainly would make sense that he's in a moment of discouragement. He's in a moment of maybe depression as he's like, I was supposed to prepare the way for Christ and now I'm in jail and I can't do anything. And, and what is happening here, right? And, and in this moment, God just meets him where he's at. He doesn't scold him in this moment, right? He, John is pressing towards Jesus and Jesus meets him where he's at and brings the encouragement that he needs Another passage we're going to cover is Psalm 73, so you can turn in your Bible to Psalm 73. <clears throat> if you're not familiar with <clears throat> the writer of Psalm 73, at the, at the very top of, of the psalm, it says this is a psalm of Asaph, and he wrote several psalms. Um, Psalms 50 and then I think 73 through maybe 89, something like that. Maybe not 89, all the way through 83. He wrote several psalms. Um, he was a worship director, a worship leader at the time of King David. King David had appointed him to be a worship leader, and he served for years, right? And... Um, we get to be invited in this psalm to see an intimate faith crisis and struggle that Asaph had. And God just invites us into it, right? If God didn't want us to understand his people have struggles, he could have just eliminated these sorts of passages. He includes these, as the scriptures say, for our encouragement, for our growth. And so verse 1, it says this. Asaph says, Truly God is good to Israel to such as are pure in heart. So he just starts off saying, God, I, I know God's true. I know God's pure in heart. But then he's going to bring us behind the scenes to what had been going on in his heart, in his life. He says this, But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. He just lets us know, I was going through this, and I just felt like I was at the edge of a cliff, and I had almost toppled over the edge. And he tells us why he was struggling. 
He says, For I was envious of the boastful when I saw the prosperity of the wicked, for there are no pangs in their death, but their strength is firm. They are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like other men. Therefore, pride serves as their necklace. Violence covers them like a garment. Their eyes bulge with abundance. They have more than their heart could wish for. They scoff and speak violently concerning oppression. They speak loftily. They set their mouth against the heavens, and their tongue walks through the earth. Therefore, his people return here, and the waters of a full cup are drained by them. And they say, how does God know? And is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the ungodly, who are always at ease. They increase in riches. Surely I cleansed my heart in vain and washed my hands in innocence. So as he's processing what he's seeing in the world, the struggles that he's personally going through, and then the relative ease that he's, he's seeing the world going through that are turning their back on God, ignoring God, but he sees them living lives of ease. Is his perspective fully correct? No, but, but this is where he's at. He's struggling with this to the space that he started to ask the question, did I turn to God in vain? Did I... Did I do what was right and follow God for no purpose? Like, why is it this way? Like, he's questioning literally everything in this moment. Verse 14. For all day long I have been plagued and chastened every morning. If I said I will speak this way, Behold, I would have been untrue to the generation of your children. So as a worship leader, he, he's saying, man, I'm thankful I didn't go around telling everybody that, you know, this is how life is, right? He's like, if I would have started to teach things like this, it would have been, I would have been untrue to your people. But this was where he was at. This is where he was struggling. Verse 16, he says, when I thought how to understand this. It was too painful for me. So we just get a glimpse into what's going on in his heart, and he's like, as I was trying to understand how this all works, how God can be good, and yet bad things be happening to the people who are following him, and good things be happening to the people that are rejecting him. When I've tried to put these things together, and it makes sense, I mean, God was the most important thing to him, and now he's questioning how is God even good in the middle of this, right? And that is a crisis, right? If you have ever found yourself in that space where you're questioning God and he's the most important thing to you, the most important person, like that is the, the deep trial of the soul. And Asa finds himself there. And he's just saying it was too painful for me. I was trying to understand it. It was just, it was just like a knife to the heart. But then... God comes through, right? Asaph keeps pressing into God, and God meets him. It says, verse 17, until I went into the sanctuary or the house of God, then I understood their end, the end of the wicked. Surely you have set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. 
Oh, how they are brought to desolation as in a moment. They are utterly consumed with terrors. As a dream when one awakes, so, Lord, when you awake, you shall despise their image. So he, God gives him perspective, right? He's at a, a gathering of God's people. For today, it would be gathering in God's, with God's people, coming to church, small group, whatever that would be. And in that, God just reminds him uh, of the, the realities that this world is not all there is, right? God is going to settle the score and one day the wicked will be judged and those who have been made right in Christ will find life in him forever. And, and this brings peace to Asaph. And now as he's looking back where his heart was at, he, he just says this, verse 21, he says, Thus my heart was grieved and I was vexed in my mind. I was so foolish and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. He's like, I was just reasoning things out like an animal, uh, you know, thinking things through without uh, thinking through eternity and the truths that you've revealed. He said, nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold me by my right hand. So Asaph realizes, man, like, if I'm looking at this thing right now, it was like I was acting like an animal, like just craziness that I was thinking through. But God never left me. God never deserted me. Like he, he, he wasn't embarrassed of my struggle and just was like, okay, peace out, yo. Get with the program or get out of here, right? Like he, he didn't do that. He realizes God was with me, right? He's holding me by my right hand, continually with me. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold me by the right hand. You will guide me with your counsel. And afterward, receive me to glory. He's new. Hey, the wicked are going to be judged. But those who turn to God, they're gonna, you're going to receive them into glory. And that just turns into this beautiful moment of praise for Asaph. He says this, Whom have I in heaven but you? There is none upon earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail. And maybe that gives us a insight into the struggle he was going through. Maybe he was, had some crazy physical ailment that was plaguing him. Um, we don't know that for sure, but he, he says here, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For indeed, those who are far off from you shall perish. You destroy all those who desert you for harlotry, prostitution, but, speaking of spiritually, turning our backs on God and turning to false gods. Verse 28, but it is good for me to draw near to God. I have put my trust in the Lord God that it may declare your works. Or you could say, the nearness of my God is my good. So we read some of these, and these aren't the only ones, but we read some of these. Um, spaces of, of great trial in the lives of God's people. And, and maybe you can identify with one more than the other, right? Maybe you're like Peter and the disciples, and you're just really struggling with some of the things that you've come across in the scriptures that Jesus teaches, right? And you're like, man, I, I, I'm having such a hard time accepting this and understanding how this works, right? And, and maybe you're seeing masses of people leave Christ 
deconstructing their faith, right, and doing the, going their own way, and you're starting to feel that peer pressure, right? Maybe that's where you're at. Maybe you're like John the Baptist, and things in your life have not at all gone like you thought God was going to work them out, and now you're like, okay, is this all real? Is this what is going on? I'm really depressed and discouraged, and I don't know what to do. Maybe you're like Asaph, and you're going through something very personal, but then you see in this world, and it's like, okay, I don't understand how to to reconcile the brokenness in this world, why bad things are happening to, to God's people, why good things are happening to evil people, and you have this large world problem that you're trying to reconcile in your mind. Um, I don't know if any of those categories meet you guys where you're at, but if they do, I know how God wants us to respond. He lets us know in his word. He lets us know even in these passages. What do we see these people doing in this moment? And one of them at the outset, is just being real, being real with God, right? He already knows what you're thinking. <laughs> he already knows what you're going through. You don't have to pretend like, you know, I'm not really struggling with this because I don't want to disappoint you, right? He knows, he knew before he chose you that, that you were going to be struggling with that, right? He chose you anyway, all right? So it's okay to be real with him. He knew it was coming. You're not going to disappoint him, right? He already knew it was coming, and he's not going to have some sort of identity crisis if you start to say, God, I'm questioning about some of these things. Like, I'm really having a hard time. You know, it's not like he's going to be like, oh, my goodness, I didn't, I didn't realize that. I'm so sorry. Like, can I, what can I do? Maybe I need to go to some counseling and figure things out. Like, that's not who God is, right? He knows who he is. He, he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he can deal with our problems. He can deal with our questions. He's big enough for those, right? And he's inviting us to come to it him, right? He, he's not interested in a fake relationship, right? If he wanted that, he would have just created a bunch of cardboard cutouts of all of us, right? But he didn't. He created human beings with minds and thoughts and questions and, and hearts, and he's called us to love him with all of those things and to press in to him in all of those things. Psalms 51 puts it this way, and this is a psalm of David, says, Behold, you, God, desire truth in the innermost being. And in the hidden part of my heart, you make me know wisdom. And I love this about God, that he wants genuine people, right? Some people just want yes men, right? Some people just want people that'll go and, and do it, you know, and, and they don't care what's going on on the inside. They just want the results. That's not who our God is, right? God loves us deeply and he loves what's going on inside of us like he wants our love to to be genuinely towards him and that's why the greatest commandment starts at the heart and that's why jesus said that wickedness also starts at the heart right we've got to love the lord our god with all of our heart mind soul and strength love our neighbor as ourselves right god is interested in the deepest parts of who we are to be genuinely exposed to him right so at the end of psalms 139 um, David prays a beautiful prayer, and he just says, God, search me, know me, try my heart, show any, me any wicked things, any anxieties within me, and lead me in the way everlasting. And that's the type of life God is calling us to as his people, whether it's the giant struggles in our life or the smaller struggles. He's just saying, be real with me, right? I desire truth in the innermost being. I want you to be real. And that's what Jesus said, right, that God is looking for people to worship him in spirit and in truth, Right? And that's why Jesus got on to the Pharisees for saying, hey, you guys draw near to me with your lips, but your heart is far from me. God wants our hearts to be real with him. 
It's a constant theme throughout the scriptures. I think of the context of Psalms 51, and this is a psalm of David asking God for forgiveness after his sin with Bathsheba. And if you know what happened, for like close to a year, David pretends like all things are good with God, right? He goes about with the sacrifices like normal. He's going to the temple, pretending like all things are good, going through the motions. And yet his heart is so far from God. And God sends a prophet and rebukes him. And then David humbles himself and prays, God, forgive me for my sins. Cleanse me from my sins. Create in me a new heart. Renew in me a loyal spirit. And in the midst of this, this beautiful verse comes out of that psalm where, where David is, is communicated by God. Hey, I want truth on the innermost part. I'm not interested in you just coming to church and being cool and putting out on a happy face and, you know, just to be with everybody else. That's not what he's about, right? He wants real people really pursuing him, really uh, walking through all facets of life. And we know this for so many reasons. First Peter lets us know, he says, give all your worries, all of your cares to God because he cares about you, right? Like God is saying, I, I want all of it. Not just some of it, give me it all. Every part of it, bring it to me, pour it out. I love Psalms uh, 1, 42, verse 2, it says this, I pour out my complaints before him, and I tell him all of my troubles. God is able to handle it, right? God is literally inviting us, hey, pour it all out to me, right? Sometimes we've had conversations with people, and they just like pour out everything, right? And by the end of the conversation, we're like, oh my gosh, all right, bro, like, uh, you know, it's a little too much, right? I, uh, right? God is not like that. Right? He, he's like, hey, give it all to me. I can handle it. I can handle it. Like, I kind of made you, you know. I can handle your problems. I can handle your insecurities. I can handle your fears, your doubts, your questions about me. He's not insecure, right? Like, if, if somebody were to come to us and have those sorts of questions about us, towards us, we, we, we might start to feel really insecure. I'm like, okay, maybe I don't want to be friends with you anymore. God's not like that, right? Like, he, he is not insecure, he knows who he is, and his desires to bring us to a true understanding of who he is and to meet us in those moments. So first thing, if we're struggling with those deep struggles in our walk with the Lord, just bring it to Jesus. Be real with him. And, and then realize you're not alone in this, right? I mean, I don't think it's on accident that God, time after time after time, records moments of, of discouragement among God's people, moments of being tempted to turn away, right? I mean, we literally just read three of them, and, and there's multiple more. I think of Elijah, right, and, and so many other people who have had these moments of, of deep discouragement, of deep uh, questioning, and of deep wondering, maybe I should just quit and be done. And, and, and God gives this to us so we know, hey, we're not alone, right? We're not alone in this. Our brothers and sisters are facing the same thing, and we should be praying for one another and asking when we're in those spaces, pray for me, right? And asking other mature believers for encouragement and, and advice in those moments. And then lastly, don't, don't lose perspective. You know, the, the perspective that Peter has is just so beautiful. In the middle of all the the hard moment, his perspective, he just knew, he's like, there's nowhere else to go, right? Like, Jesus, you're it. You alone have eternal life. You're the creator. You're the maker. This world has nothing to offer me. Pastor Jim recently taught on that, 
in, in 1 John, God urging his people, don't love this world or the things in this world. Because if you love this world, the love of the Father's not in you. And then he says, hey, this world is passing away. It's going away. I don't want you to be dragged down with it into destruction. Come out of the world, right? It's going away, but he says, but those who do the will of God will abide forever. And so God's heart for us is he wants us to, to have his life. He doesn't want us to turn away to destruction, but to remain in him. And, and there's nothing else outside of Christ. There's no hope outside of Christ. Imagine the things that people turn to. Materialism, right? What hope is there in materialism? First of all, it's very illogical to think that everything came from nothing, right? But what that mindset teaches us, right, is that there's no purpose to anything. Everything is whatever I want it to be, and when I'm dead and gone, it's all done, and there was no purpose to any of it, right? What a sad and empty thing to turn to. There is no hope there. There is no eternal life there. There is eternal life in Christ, right? False religions might be trying to call us to them, but when you really get into it, there is no credibility. Nothing comes close to the, the, the uh, things that are attested to within the scriptures and through the scriptures. There's no hope in those things either. They're, they're always claiming, you've got to do good enough to reach it to God. And if we are honest with ourselves, every one of us knows that could never happen. All of us know how uh, deeply wicked we are if we're being honest with ourselves and that we could never make up for that. That's why Christ alone is, is the answer. And when we think about the other religions, right? Buddha's dead, Gandhi's dead, Muhammad's dead, Joseph Smith's dead, you, the list goes on, but Jesus is alive. Like, he is literally the only one that gives us the answer to the grave. That all of us, the scriptures tell us, at one point in our lives were held captive to that slavery of, of death. But Christ has set us free if we've put our trust in him. Acts Chapter 4 puts it this way, Peter speaking, he says, There is salvation in no one else. God has given no other name under heaven by which we must be saved, except for Jesus in the context. That's who he is talking about. Jesus is the only name by which we could be saved. There is no hope outside of him. One of my favorite verses is uh, John 16, And in it, uh, I love it so much because so much of the brokenness in this world that's so hard to navigate sometimes is just clearly uh, spelled out to us. Jesus just, he's not promising us something other than what we see in this world. He says, hey, you're going to have troubles and trials, right? I've told you these things. He said this right before he died on the cross for our sins. I told you these things so that in me you may have peace. Here on earth, each of you will have many trials and sorrows, but take heart because I have overcome the world. Right? He says, hey, it's going to be hard. There's going to be trials. There's going to be sorrows. It's going to be rough at times. But he says, but take heart. Don't give up. That's the idea of take heart. Don't let the pressure squash you and cause you to give up and turn away. Don't give up. Why? Because I've overcome the world. Right? Like Asaph came to realize, hey, this world's not all there is. God is going to settle the score in heaven. He is our only hope. <clears throat> We're going to end this morning by reading... Um, a few passages, one in Psalms 62, so you're right there in your Bibles if you want to turn there. If not, you can just listen, but Psalm 62, and I'm going to start in verse 1. It says this, this is a Psalm of David, Truly my soul silently waits for God, 
From him comes my salvation. He only is my rock and my salvation. He is my defense. I shall not be greatly moved. David just recognizing, you're my only rock. You're my only salvation. There's only one option here. No alternatives. And in the middle of this trial that David was referencing, he says, I'm not going to be greatly moved. God's going to hold me fast. God's going to take care of me. Skip down to verse 5. My soul waits silently for God alone. For my expectation is from Him. He only is my rock and my salvation. He is my defense. I shall not be moved. And God is my salvation and my glory. The rock of my strength and my refuge is in God. Trust in Him at all times, you people. Pour out your heart before Him. God is a refuge for us. David just over and again just recognizes, God, you're my only hope. You're my only refuge. You're it. Where else can I go? You're it. And then he just says in the midst of those times, right, he says, trust, verse 8, trust in God at all times, you people. Pour out your hearts before him, right? God is literally inviting us to just pour out all the jumbled up mess inside our hearts before him. He's saying, I'll be your refuge, right? I'll meet you right where you're at. No matter what you've got all going on in there, I'm not afraid to see it. I'm not afraid to hear it. I'm not afraid to deal with it. I'm not afraid to fix it, right? Just bring it to me and I'll be your refuge. And then we'll, we'll jump to uh, Hebrews chapter 10. You can turn there if you want, but you don't have to. I will read uh, some scriptures in Hebrews 10, and then we'll close in prayer and worship. Hebrews chapter 10, and I'm going to be starting in verse 19. And if you're familiar with the book of Hebrews, uh, it's a great book. If you're, having, if you're in this space that we've been talking about this morning, jump in the book of Hebrews. It's a constant encouragement to keep trusting in God, to not give up, to not turn away from this glorious hope that has been given to us in Christ. Verse 19 says this, Therefore, brothers and sisters, having boldness to enter the holiest place by the blood of Jesus, the very presence of God, which we get to enter into every time we pray, Every time we commune in God's word. By a new and living way, which he consecrated for us through the veil, that is his flesh, his body being broken for us and given for us. And having a high priest, Jesus being a mediator between us, over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Once again, having a sincere, true heart before God having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering because God who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembly of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. He says, hey, draw near with a heart full of assurance, right? Not turning away. Why? Because God who promised is faithful. And then let's think about each other, how we can encourage each other to keep going, to keep walking in the things that the Lord has called us to, not forsaking gathering together, not 
uh, being mindless towards our brothers and sisters. Verse 35, Therefore, do not cast away your confidence, your faith, which has great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise. For yet a little while, and he who is coming will come, it will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith. As other scriptures say, we live by faith and not by sight. But if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who draw back to perdition or destruction, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. I don't know where all that meets you this morning, but uh, if you're here this morning and you don't know the Lord and you realize, man, I've been living in this world and I have no hope, God is telling us, hey, call out to Him. The Scriptures say anyone and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. You can literally call on Him today no matter what you've done. He will forgive you and bring you into a, a real relationship with Him. And maybe today you have known the Lord for a long time and you have just been wrestling in your heart with things. Well, bring it to the Lord. Pour out your heart to Him today, right? Just be real with Him. He knows already those things that are going on, right? But how can you have a a fellowship with Him if you're holding those things back, even though He knows you're holding them back, right? We, We wouldn't expect anything else in a human relationship, If we're holding everything back, how can we have a a relationship with another person, right? How much more with God, right? He's inviting us to intimacy. He's inviting us to nearness. He's inviting to literally carry our burdens and sustain us and meet us in those moments as he did for John the Baptist, as he did for the disciples and their weakness, as he did for Asaph, as he's done every child of God. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for your love for us. God, we pray that wherever we're at today, I pray that our hearts would find peace in your faithfulness, Lord, that you are a faithful God. If If there's any here that don't know you, Lord, I pray today they would call on your name and find forgiveness of their sins and find life in you. You alone have the words of eternal life. You alone have made a way for us to be forgiven of all the evil things we've done, to be given a clear conscience, forgiven of all of our guilt, and brought near to you. pray that that would happen for any who don't know you. And those of us who do know you, Lord, may we be those who, no matter what struggles, whether they're very large, maybe even crises of faith, or or smaller ones, Lord. May we bring them daily before you as you have promised you care about us and you want to carry us. You stay in, in your word that you have made us and you will carry us. And so, Lord, may we be those who bring ourselves before you and be real with you. Lord, may we carry each other's burdens. May we lift one another up. And, and, and Lord, in the midst of the hardest times, may we hold on to the reality that you, you alone can rescue. You alone are the hope of this world. You alone are the hope of our lives. And Lord, we just pray that 
you would hold us fast, Lord. We know that you are faithful to do that. You've begun a good work, Lord. If you've begun it, you will finish it. And so, Lord, may we take peace and rest in knowing this. In Jesus' name, amen.